Hello and welcome. Today I will be reading Neville Goddard's lecture titled They Did Not Die from 1964. Alright, so I am going to take a sip of my coffee and then dive into this lecture. Hope everyone is having a wonderful day today. Alright, so Neville tells his audience Tonight's subject is They Did Not Die. <clears throat> it is possibly the most difficult subject to discuss, but I'll do my best. We turn to the greatest of all the books, the Bible. And so the Old Testament really is prophetic history. Everything in it will come to pass. Everything. So we turn to the 51st chapter <clears throat> of Jeremiah, the 39th verse. While they were inflamed, I prepared a feast for them and made them drunk. Till they swooned and then they slept a perpetual sleep and did not awake, says the Lord, while they were inflamed. The word translated inflamed is a self-imposed trance, really, to become so completely carried away with the story that is being told that I'm completely inflamed, I'm entranced. And so the feast prepared is the story told me. I'm being told a story of transcending myself and I'm feasting upon it. Then I feast upon it until I swoon away. I am drunk and then in this state as I swoon away, I sleep a perpetual sleep and do not wake. That's the story. You who have your Bibles, you can check it. It's the 51st chapter the 39th verse of Jeremiah. Now I know from my own experience that nothing dies, but nothing dies. The little flower that blooms once blooms forever, and yet in this world of ours, <clears throat> everything seems to come into being. It waxes, it wanes, and it disappears, everything. So we see things constantly dying, they're born and then they die, and yet I can tell you from my own experience that nothing dies. So tonight, we'll take this and try to take it, in a limited time, from different angles. The Bible begins, and the beginning God. This is Genesis. The book of Genesis ends on the note, in a coffin in Egypt, Genesis 1-1 and 50-26. All ends run true to origins. The origin is God. In the beginning, God, and a coffin in Egypt. The word translated coffin is also translated ark. And so Blake said, <clears throat> Man is either the ark of God or a phantom of the earth and the sea. I say man is that ark that contains God and God being all that there is. Everything goes into the ark. And the ark is man. So, in the beginning God, and a coffin in Egypt. But the one placed in that coffin is called Joseph, and Joseph was called the dreamer. Behold, the dreamer cometh, Genesis 37:19. Now the Bible recognizes only one source of dreams. <clears throat> All dreams proceed from God. So Joseph is a prototype of God. So the dreamer is put into a coffin, which is man, in Egypt. But he exacts from the sons 
of Israel a promise that they will not leave him there. They'll bring him out of Egypt into that which was promised by God before this journey started. Now, the Bible itself ends on the note in the end of Revelation, omitting the very last verse, which is only a benediction. But the very last verse of the actual end is come, Lord Jesus. These are the words. So, in the beginning, God, in a coffin in Egypt, come, Lord Jesus. We are told in the New Testament, in Colossians, in Corinthians, that Jesus was raised from the dead, the first fruits of those that slept. So here, something is placed in the coffin, and it seemingly is dead. And the first awakening is called Jesus Christ, the first fruits of those who slept. So come, Lord Jesus, come, awake us from the stream, this fantastic dream where we are fighting with demons. A great Irish mystic, poet, painter, essayist, his name is George Russell, but he's better known to us as A.E. He chose the initials A.E. He wrote a book called The Candle of Vision. And in this book, he re reveals his mystical experiences. The one I would like to use this night, he called the many-colored land. He said, I will not tell you where I saw it, but saw it I did. I will not tell you where I saw this. And then he describes what he saw. A hall vaster than the larger cathedral, and its pillars made seemingly of living, pulsing opal. And between the pillars were thorns, or were thrones, and, uh, and they faded into the very end. On these thrones sat divine kings, fiery created, or fiery crested. He said, I saw one who wore the crest of the dragon, another as I can describe it, said he. It seemed to be plumes of fire, and they stretched to the very end. At the, fat, at the far end was a throne higher, and on it sat one greater than the rest. A light like the sun glowed from behind him. On the floor there lay a dark figure, and over this dark figure two of the divine kings waved their hands. And as they waved their hands over this figure, head and body, fire came from the body where the hands moved, like some strange moving fire, or he described it as jewels, scintillating jewels coming from the body. Then out of this body came a figure as tall, as glorious, as radiant as those who sat upon the thrones. Then he awoke to the hall, and then he became aware of his divine kin and raised his hand in greeting. <clears throat> those on the thrones leapt from their thrones with hands lifted in greeting to the one who had returned from his long, dark journey. Then altogether they moved and vanished into the light. Then he woke here in this world. It's the most perfect picture that I have read concerning this descent into this world. You're only here for a purpose to play a part. You are here to increase your creative power. You are not a being born in this world at all. But in this descent, when you were entranced from on high, you would have the experience of birth and death. So many years ago, I wrote a tiny little pamphlet, and I closed it with this thought. 
that the universe that we study with such care is a dream. And we, the dreamers of the dream, eternal dreams, dreaming non-eternal dreams, one day, like Nebuchadnezzar, we will awaken from our dream in which we fought with demons to discover that we really never left our eternal home. We were never born, have never died, save in our dream. That's from the search. That nothing in this world, I don't care what they will tell me, passes away. But you and I are not the thing that we are observing or at the moment that we experience and this goes for everything in this world. So now let me share with you on different levels what I know from experience. Back in 1944, at a Bible class in New York City, a lady who lived with her mother, she was then 45, she wouldn't marry because she thought, well now, if I marry, I don't think a husband would want to take on the obligations of my mother. I would not leave my mother for any man in this world. So she refused marriage, and she and her mother lived together until the mother died. At the Bible class, she said to me, Neville, I just can't tell you. My whole heart has gone out. Mother's gone, and my house is empty. My world is empty. I said, do you want to see your mother? If it would be any consolation to you to prove to you your mother hasn't gone, you want to see her? She said, yes. This is Monday night. My classes were held on Monday night. I said, all right, this is Monday. It is now uh, It is now the following Monday, and you're in this room now, and you're telling my Bible class that you met your mother and that your mother hasn't died. There is survival in this world, I said. Will you do it? She said, yes. The following Monday, she rose in my Bible class and said, uh, this to the audience. She said, I did it Monday night, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. The wee hours of Friday morning, I began to awake and I found myself out of my body. I knew that because I looked back at the bed and there is the body. At the very moment, my mother is coming through the door. Well, it didn't seem strange to me she was coming through the door, but that was not as interesting to me as the body. So as mother came through the door, I completely forgot that she was dead, the purpose of what I was doing. <clears throat> and so I said to my mother, look, my body. She said to me, you're just as stupid as ever. Because her mother would not come to my meetings and her, <clears throat> and her mother always disapproved of her daughter coming to my meetings because her mother was nice uh, or was a nice Orthodox Christian. And she thought <clears throat> that I was leading her daughter astray by teaching the Bible along this line. This was simply the devil's Bible. So as her mother said, you're just as stupid as ever. A little dog came into the room and she bent down and began to fondle this dog. She smothered the dog with kisses and affection. And then it dawned upon her, why this is my dog that died five years ago. At that moment, she became so emotionally disturbed that she snapped and found herself back in the body. All right, I'm going to take a sip of my coffee. <clears throat> Two years later, I came west and received one morning a cable that my secretary, who served me faithfully, he was like a brother to me, had died. And so we went back and I took care of his funeral. He never really attended the Catholic Church, but he was born in the Catholic faith. 
and his sister that he never saw and really heartily disliked, but she insisted that Jack should have a Catholic funeral. So we abided by her decision. So we went up to Haverstraw, New York, and he had the perfect Catholic funeral where the sister went by and kissed the dead body, and they all went by and kissed it and did all these things. Well, if that is par for the course or not, I don't know, but that's what they did. Well, I have a sister-in-law, my wife's sister. She's a pillar of the Episcopal Church in Jersey, and I think she loves me dearly for one reason, because I take good care of her sister and our child. So being a good father and a good husband, she will tolerate my way of making a living. She doesn't go for it. She said, I don't believe one word that you say, Neville. Not a word. Immorality is simply the extension of oneself and children, and their children and their children, but immorality. As you teach it, I don't go for it. I said to her, how can you say this when you are a Christian? Don't you know the foundation stone of Christianity is the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man, and life everlasting? And you can't rub out one stone. If you rub out one of these, foundation stones, the whole building will topple. It's the fatherhood of God, which you find in the words, Our Father. And the belief in the revelation of Christianity is eternal life. You can't rub out one, she said. I will not believe one word you say, said she. Well, six or seven months after my secretary died, one night I was out consciously, just as I am here. Al, my sister-in-law, came into the room, and my secretary, who was then so-called dead, six or seven months, he came into the room. She said to me, I still don't believe one word you teach. Neville, then I said to her, How can you say that when you see Jack? She said, What is he to do with what you teach? I said, Don't you know that he died six months ago? See, she's not consciously out. She is in a dream state. So she's not aware. Well, when I made the statement, all of a sudden I could see her face begin to show a certain memory image. And she begins to bring back the knowledge that he did die six months ago. As she's looking at Jack, and Jack is here solidly real, I said to her, I'll show you how real he is. I said, Jack, come over here. So Jack came, and I put my hand on his thigh, and the thigh was as solid as this. I said, you see, my hand doesn't go through his thigh. He's real. He's solidly real. <clears throat> and with this, Jack did this to me, slapped his hand away. He said, take your hands off. Just what he would have done were he here. There was no transforming power in death. The same jack on the wheel of recurrence. There is no death, but there are wheels within wheels, within wheels in this world. Then the scene shifted from that moment, and the most pleasant, I would say, few years that Jack had on that little wheel. He died at the age of 50. So in 50 years, the most pleasant experience was in Florida, when he managed some little citrus grove of 150 acres. He managed it on the basis of so much per month, and then, if a profit, he got a profit. But he was living in, living in the open, and he just loved it. So the scene shifted, and there we are in Florida, and he's throwing grapefruit at me. I caught a few, and then she said, Where's my grapefruit? At that very moment, my little girl, who was then only about four or five years old, she said, 
Daddy, time for breakfast. And I snapped it and was back in this world on this wheel. There are wheels within wheels within wheels and nothing dies. So the purpose of it all is to awaken the dreamer. In the beginning, God in a coffin. This is a coffin and this is Egypt. Come, Lord Jesus, the first fruits of those who rose from the dead. Come that promise in me that I will not leave you, for I exacted a promise from the sons of Israel. They would not leave me here, or they would not leave me in Egypt. They would take my body out, out of Egypt, and bring it into the promised land. So I am asking to come, Lord Jesus, that he will take me. The being encased in this coffin, in this ark where all things are contained, and awaken me. Christianity is only the awakening, that's all that it is, the awakening from this age into that age. So man thinks while he is on this wheel that we are moving towards the inevitable climate or the inevitable climax of good in this world. The climax has already occurred with the words it is finished. It is finished is simply the end of one age and the beginning of a new one, a new age that is marked by the resurrection. So we are resurrected from this age into an entirely different age. But we came into this age just as A.E. saw it so clearly and so vividly that here this dark figure entranced on the floor in this opalescent scintillating world where these already resurrected divine kings dwell and these sons of Israel would not let him remain here. He's entranced and he's dreaming this world, for the dreamer was the one embalmed and put in a coffin in Egypt, for his name was Joseph. Behold, the dreamer cometh, and they took him and sold him in, into Egypt. Then Joseph died, and they embalmed him and put him in the ark in a coffin in Egypt. Genesis fifty twenty six. But the verse before the very end of the first book, the book of Genesis, the verse before the end, he exacts the promise. Do not leave my bones, my body in Egypt. Bring me out and take me into the land that was promised. Then comes the next book is Exodus. So the seed plot of the Bible is Genesis. It's also the great, I would say, introduction to this unfolding picture. So here, when I say nothing dies, I mean it seriously. You're on a wheel, and the wheel is perfect. You can't change it. You get off the wheel. And may I tell you this night, what is the secret of getting off the wheel? It is revision. Revision is repentance. Repentance, which I call today revision, for repentance simply means a radical change of attitude towards life. Then you break life's individual bond, and turn the circle, the wheel of recurrence, into a spiral of ascension. You turn it right into a spiral and conquer Zion, or the home of God. So David built in a circle, and he built inward at one at the same time. And to accomplish this unusual, strange architectural feast, it could only be done if you built in a spiral. Second Samuel 5, 6-9 And now I'm speaking from experience. By practicing revision, you don't allow anything in this world to be as it is. If it isn't pleasing, you change it. Therefore, <clears throat> you will not, when the wheel turns, you will not come back to the po that point. You've changed it. 
it will not return to that point. It will return in the form of a spiral, and instead of being in a circle of recurrence, when the wheel turns, you are turning on the spiral by changing one event in your present recurring circle. <clears throat> now, there is a lady here this night, she and her husband, and three weeks ago, last Friday, she said to me, I lost my father. My father died. I told her without explaining in detail what, you, what you've just heard, what I did with the lady in my Bible class 20 years ago. She came back two weeks later, and I said to her, This is Friday night. You go forward in time one week. It's still Friday, and you reflect upon the thrill. For of all the pleasures of the world, relief is the most keenly felt. So you feel the relief that is yours because you know beyond all doubt from actual experience that your father lives. He hasn't died. He survived. She didn't come back for two weeks, but she could tell me on the seventh day, which was the night of the Thursday of the following week, in vision she met her father. So she knows now beyond all doubt that the father hasn't died. She knows it. Took one week to prove beyond all doubt, not going through a medium. No, being, no medium tells her or tries to persuade her. She knows she had the experience that her father lives. I'm going to take another sip of my coffee. Okay, uh, where was I? Oh, <clears throat> well now, a gentleman wrote me a letter that I received today. To show you how this works, he said, a friend of mine was out of work for quite a while, so I simply applied this principle towards him. In the past, I've applied this principle of imagining towards many things, but it happened so naturally I thought it would have happened anyway, and so I put it down to coincidence. But in this case, my friend, being out of work, I applied it, and he got a job, a fine job. It meant going to New York City, or rather going off to Connecticut, and be trained for the job, to be trained in a month. Then the next thing I heard that they filled the job, someone in the East got the job, and so they didn't complete it here. I felt a bit disappointed. Then I remembered the story of revision, so I revised it. I revised the entire thing that I heard about my friend and saw him in a job. Then came Friday, and I thought I'd give a little party the following day. Thought I'd call a few friends in and have a little fun. I called a friend of mine, and he was busy. He couldn't move, but he was curious and asked me, Who are you having? I mentioned this friend of mine who had been turned down on this job. He said to me, you'd better call him right away because he's leaving on Sunday for New York City. I said, did he get the job? He said, yes, a better job. He was turned down on one, then they called him back through the same agency and gave him a better job. Now he's leaving on Sunday for New York City to be trained for one month in Connecticut and then back to the job. Now he's not here tonight, but his letter came to me today. So I tell you from experience, we are on wheels, wheels within wheels within wheels, and no one knows that they play this part over and over and over again. You won't break life's invidious bar until you start repenting, and repenting is simple revision. The first proclamation in the earliest gospel is, the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent 
and believe in the Gospel, Mark 1.14. To repent is to radically change your attitude towards life, completely change it, no matter how factual it is. So the job isn't his, he's been turned down. Somebody else got it, and it's 3,000 miles away. And you can't argue with them. I will not accept it. I will see my friend in that job. I will persuade myself that he has the job. And when I call him on a date, he's he's leaving not. He's leaving on Sunday. I'm calling him on Friday, asking him for a date on Saturday. And he's pulling out Sunday, and he's pulling out Sunday to be trained in the East. That is breaking the wheel of recurrence and turning it into the ascent, the spiral. That's exactly what David did when he conquered Zion. For above, we are told only the blind, the lame, and the halt were necessary to keep him away forever. And so, unlike all the others who tried to storm it from without, he went up the water shaft in a spiral. You go up the water shaft in a spiral by practicing the art of revision. So if I gave nothing to the world in my 59 years so far, I have given the art of revision. It isn't new, it's simply repentance. But repentance after the years of misuse is like a ship at sea with barnacles. It should be taken in and scraped. Because today, repentance in the world means remorse, regret. After unnumbered centuries of believing that repentance means to feel regretful and remorseful, that was not the original intention and never was and still is not. It is simply a radical change of attitude towards life. And so I discovered it. It wasn't new. There is nothing new under the sun. As we are told, is there, is there a thing which is said, see, this is new? It was before in ages past, but there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things to come after among those things who will follow later. Ecclesiastes 1.10 Because they are on a wheel, and the wheel is so vast, there are wheels within wheels within wheels. Well, take this wheel. In 1901, these two educators, Miss Mobley and Miss Jordan, Miss Mobley was principal of St. Hugh's College at Oxford, and Miss Jordan was vice principal, who, when she resigned the principalship, then Miss Jordan became principal. They came from a long line of educators, therefore they were schooled in observing and knowing how to really observe carefully what they're supposed to pass on, or what they're supposed to pass, <clears throat> pass an opinion on. Well... In 1901, they made this trip to Versailles, and when they returned after their vacation in Versailles, they wrote an account of their experiences, and they paralleled, they duplicated each other. You could superimpose one upon the other, and they fitted. It was not what they should have seen in Versailles. While in Versailles in 1901, they both slipped in time and went back to Versailles when the Queen was there just prior to the execution. They saw the entire picture, the costumes of the people, what they wore, what they did, the little bridge that is no longer there, and their account was so accurate that the French government made a thorough investigation of what they said they saw as against what today the French government presents as factual. 
and they rearranged that picture to conform to what they saw by investigation. The little bridge that was not there, they replaced. The costumes that were not worn, they replaced. Because a thorough investigation proved that their vision of what they actually saw was the true vision of that period, it hadn't passed away. If you can now slip in time into any part of this constant turning wheel, you would see things as they are always. When Sir William Ramsey, the English scientist, took uh, doses of ether under control and he had his secretary give the dose and then record what he was observing and experiencing, then he observed that I now see a man delivering coal and it seems at that moment that he is delivering coal because someone ordered coal. But at this level of withdrawal, he is not delivering coal because someone ordered coal. It seems to me that he is the eternal part of the structure of the universe. At this moment in time, he is always delivering coal. You dwell upon it. At this moment in time, that part of the structure of the universe is always delivering coal. So at this moment in time... This thing here is always saying what it's saying, but you break the circle, and you come out into the spiral. Leave this age and enter an entirely different age. Hamlet remains to be played. It's the 400th year of the great Shakespeare. Hamlet has been played for 400 years, and they've come and gone as actors playing the part, but Hamlet... The internal structure of that creation of Shakespeare remains. Actors come and they play and they go. They play and they go. The actor goes on and the actor is the one that is called God in scripture. The actor is the one that was entombed and put into a coffin in Egypt. And this is that coffin. So I am playing parts, and then comes a moment in time where I reach the end of my long, dark journey. And in that wonderful structure, my brothers are waiting, waiting, passing over this dark body of mine, while it is entranced on the floor of that heavenly structure. And as they pass their hands over the dark body, they awaken the fires within it and split it, that cloven pine and ribbon and out comes a being as tall as glorious as shining as those who are seated on the thrones everyone comes out in that same manner for i exacted before i was entranced a promise they would not leave me entranced i would dream the dream of life i would take upon myself the limitations of death and then dream this dream of being born and dying and having nothing and having something and being wanted and being unwanted, and being hurt and being severed, no eyes, no arms, all these I would dream. But don't leave me in the dream. Awaken. Awaken me at that moment in time when the dream is complete. Because if I complete the dream, I have increased the power of my creativity, and I will join with my brothers, my heavenly kin, and then, as I awake and become awake in the room, I will look around and see those I've always known. <clears throat> and seeing them, raise my hands in salutation. They will leap from their thrones, with their hands greeting me, and together into the one body called Jesus Christ. Only one in all this fabulous world. 
So all of this is a dream and nothing passes away. It remains fixed, a fixed structure animated by the dreamer. As he dreams, he animates it. And the whole thing becomes an animated world because of the dreamer that is God. So the Bible begins, In the beginning God, and ends, come, Lord Jesus. But the seed plot of the Bible, being Genesis, the end of Genesis, is, And he was entombed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. The word coffin is the same as ark, and this is the ark where all things are contained. He takes everything in, in a creative manner, so that they will reproduce, he takes them in, in pairs, so that everything, all the animals, everything goes into the ark because God is in the ark, and there's nothing but God. So the power to create and multiply beyond my wildest dream is contained within this ark, this coffin that you see here, but above that no one sees, not out in space but in the depth of the soul, those that I actually extracted a promise, they would not leave me in the dark. They watch carefully, and when the dream is coming to an end, they pass their hands over my sleeping dark body. From it come splits in the body, and sparks come out, like scintillating jewels. And suddenly out from the dark body emerges a being as tall and glorious, and as brilliant as those who were seated on the thrones. I recognized the place, for that was where I was entombed, and recognized my kin, my divine kin. And I know the end that was promised me, for we come out of God as God. We are the Elohim. You are the Elohim, not some little thing on the outside. So when the Elohim said, Let us make man in our image, he assumed the illuminations of man for the expansion of his creative power. So as Jung brought out in his book, and when he saw himself in deep meditation, he said, Aha, so he is meditating me, and when, when he awakes from his dream, I will no longer be. May I tell you, when you awake from the dream, this age will no longer be to you. By you, the dreamer will be simply expanded beyond what you were when you, beyond what you were when you began the dream. Not a thing is lost, all is gained. Now, do you know the meaning of the word ark? The primal meaning of the word coffin is to pluck, to gather. That's the primary meaning of the word. You'll find it in your concordance, to pluck, to gather. So, by assuming the limitations of death and dreaming of the horrors of this world, I pluck and gather a far greater power to create than I could if I did not descend to this limitation. So that's the meaning of the word ark, the meaning of the word coffin. So here, in the beginning, God, come, Lord Jesus. So the cry to the whole vast world is, come, awaken me from this dream. For it seems that man so entranced has told you, let me quote it once more, the 51st chapter, the 39th verse. While they are inflamed, I will prepare for them a feast and make them drunk, until they swoon away and sleep a perpetual sleep, and not awake, saith the Lord. The sleep is so profound, it seems forever and forever. I make them drunk. <clears throat> Who makes them drunk? It is God. <clears throat> well, this is God making the statement. 
What is this inflammation? It is the inflammation. And the normal translation is called heat. That is, in the King James Version. It's the heat, like the heat of an animal. When an animal is in heat, the neighborhood is disturbed. The whole neighborhood is disturbed when an animal is in heat. They come from afar and everything is disturbed <clears throat> when she is in heat. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> so, in the King James Version, it is heat. In the Revised Standard Version, the same word is translated inflamed. It means the same thing. While they are inflamed, when I am inspired with the story. For he is preparing me a feast. And what is this food? When he was asked, haven't you eaten? He said, I have no food, or I have food you know not of. My food is to do the will of him that sent me. His plan, his purpose, John four thirty-two and 34. <clears throat> I am feeding upon his plan, his purpose. I am so inflamed with this plan of expanding my creative power that I swoon and appear to others as though I am drunk, which is now repeated in the second chapter of Acts, when Peter said, We are not drunk. When they were feasting upon the plan of God for expanding his own creative power, it left them in a swoon, and the swoon was asleep, like a perpetual sleep, from which they would not awake, until God in his merciful act awakened them. But he extracted a pledge from himself. He would not be left in Egypt in this coffin. He would be awakened. And so, A.E.'s vision, he said, I will not tell you where I saw it. I wish he had, but that's his privilege. I will not tell you. But if you have the candle division, it's out of print, but go to the library. It's beautifully written. It's simply, it's all in prose, but it's poetry. And it's all based upon what the man actually experienced. It's a small little book. I called his son up in New York City and asked him if he had extra copies and anything that A.E. wrote. And the son was delighted and asked, or was delighted that I mentioned and remembered his father. But he said, I'm sorry, I don't have a copy of it myself. I can hardly believe that. And yet, when I think of it, I don't think my son has one book of mine. So it doesn't really matter. I'm quite sure that if I went to Barbados, as I will in two months, and asked my son for a copy of anything that I have written, he couldn't produce it. He's not interested. <clears throat> and so I called young Russell, the son of George Russell, and asked him for any copy that his father had written, for he wrote some lovely novels, all based upon this strange, wonderful use of imagination. But the one I quoted this night is A Candle of Vision. He begins it. In a very little note that precedes the entire work, he quotes from the book of Proverbs and the book of Job. In the book of Proverbs, it is said, The spirit of man is a candle of the Lord. And in the book of Job, it is said, And when his candle was lit up upon my head, or was lit upon my head, by its light I walked through darkness. So he takes these two passages from Proverbs and Job and puts them in the first page. And then he starts his own wonderful mystical experiences. So the book is called The Candle of Vision. I had two copies and I gave one to my friend Freedom Berry in San Francisco because he is doing this work. If I had any extra copies of anything that I loved, I would give it to him that he may be encouraged to simply go and keep on expanding.
Now let us go into the silence. All right, so there we have Neville Goddard's lecture from 1964 titled, They Did Not Die. As always, thank you so much for joining me today, and I will see you guys next time. Bye now.